This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for yet another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. On this podcast, my partner Bean and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, go over some of the more fascinating points in the very, 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 very long history of human beings and cannabis. Isn't that right, Bean? That is precisely what we do. Yeah, and uh, I'm about to hear this story fresh along with you. Bean has written and researched it, and uh, we're going to be hearing it for the first time. We're going to smoke some weed. We're going to drink some tea. Uh, I'm super excited. Uh, Bean, what do you got for us today? Uh, Today I have a story about the restorative and the regenerative power of the cannabis plant for the land, for the people, and for the community. Oh, wow. It's bringing together a lot of core beliefs here on Great Moments in Weed History that weed is a fantastic thing, not only for the individual, but also for the community and also for the world, for the earth in general. That's great. I am really stoked that there's one story that brings all of these themes together. So I I got, uh, in preparation for this, I have a joint rolled up here, uh, ready to rock. We've got some tasty beverages for us. That's tremendous foresight. (laughs) Now, if you're listening at home and you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, I just got this jar of weed and I'm not ready. They're going to start and I'm not even blazed. It's cool. You just hit pause. Roll something up. You can pack something up. You can drop a dab into your dabulator. <laughs> that's, that's what they're doing out there. Yeah, dabulators. I said that right, that's, correct? That's absolutely right. And when you're ready, we'll be right here for another great moment in weed history. Okay, so this is a multi-layered story, it sounds like. There's a lot of themes going on here, a lot of really cool stuff. I'm going to light this joint, my dude, and uh, take us there. Yeah, let's do it. Well, you know, as I said, this is a story about the restorative and the regenerative power of the cannabis plant. So, you know, we're going to start with some hard stuff, and then we're going to see how this plant comes in and and really helps heal the land and heal the people. Very often in cannabis, great moments are preceded by tough moments of sickness, of ill health, of poverty occasionally, of marginalization at the hands of the authorities. So, you know, I'm ready for it. And knowing that as we go through the tough parts, uh, we're going to be racing towards a good one. Absolutely. And uh, this is also a community we haven't yet spoken about on the show. So I'm excited and happy to to share this story. Great. Uh, Let's do it. Alex White Plume was born on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, just seven miles from Wounded Knee, which was the site of an 1890 massacre that saw the U.S. Cavalry troops murder hundreds of Lakota women and children in a completely unprovoked attack against completely unarmed people. 
I actually have spent some time with the Lakota Indians on Vice Does America. We uh, went to the Keystone Pipeline protest, and there we actually met and hung out with Lakota protesters who were there, and actually they were defending a piece of land which was planned for excavation for this pipeline, which contained a whole plethora of plants that they used for indigenous medicine. Uh, so so th- this is really fascinating. I think that this is an incredibly important part of weed history that would be otherwise forgotten in many ways. So yeah, let's go. Okay, so yeah, so, you know, Alex White Plume is is born on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and it's like many Native peoples of this land. It's a dark history with the United States government. He's very close to where Wounded Knee was, and as he's growing up, he was born in the 1950s, and he had 10 siblings. They lived their entire life on this piece of land in a very remote stretch of the reservation that was actually granted to his grandparents as part of a treaty with the federal government, which, spoiler alert, was broken. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's like, you know, almost don't need to say it, but of course we should say it. Yeah. Um, many, many of the treaties were broken with the Lakota. And then growing up, his whole family spoke only the Lakota language. They sort of lived off the land in this pretty harsh environment, so it's close to South Dakota. So for Alex's family, he's, he's the oldest of these 10 siblings, and, you know, they're farming, they're foraging, they're hunting. As we know, the this Indian reservation that they lived on is one of the poorest communities in, I won't say the United States, but in North America even, yeah. you know. But in Alex's words, when he looked back on his childhood growing up this way, he said, we were at one time a whole, healthy, loving family. My parents used to work potato fields and cornfields all over Nebraska and Wyoming and bring food and resources home so we could survive the winter. Uh, I know you were there in the summer, but imagine what a South Dakota winter is like. Oh, my God. I, I, I mean, the closest thing I think I've seen to it, and probably most people have seen to it, is in Fargo, which is just like frozen and under four feet of snow. Yeah, absolutely. And now if if you're doing a winter like that in a house with uh, central heating and, uh, you know, you make good money, there's lots of ways to distance yourself from the land and the environment around you. But how Alex White Plume grew up was literally trying to survive each winter, get enough food, get enough firewood, get everything they needed to live through this. But he looks back on it as a somewhat idyllic time. But then, and this is continuing in his own words, then my father was beaten to death in Nebraska by a gang of 13 men, all non-Indians. Oh, man. Um, so, a, a, you know, a racially charged a, murder, a racist murder. A lynching, of, essentially. Yeah. And then his mother was also killed. So this is Alex Whiteplume saying, at the age of 14, I was the eldest in the family. I became father, mother, Big brother, uncle, grandpa, and grandma all rolled into one. Oh, my God. That's so insane. And I mean, this is a single story in countless stories of Native Americans who have been marginalized and been murdered at the hands of interlopers, essentially. You know, it's it's so fucked to hear that even after the devastation 
that the indigenous communities of the Americas faced for centuries and, you know, almost were wiped out. For even, even for those who are left, they completely get fucked. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am of Jewish ancestry myself, and we talk about a genocide that happened. And, and sometimes people say the Holocaust or it, like it was a singular event that only happened to one people. And it's like this was a genocide against the indigenous people who, who lived in this land for a long time in very close relation with nature. And, you know, it happened over hundreds of years, and it's still here touching Alex White Plume's family in the 1950s and, and leaving him and his brothers and sisters basically orphans uh, out on this very remote stretch of land with really no resources to help them. Everyone surrounding them is also very poor, and there isn't the, the social safety net that you would see other places. So uh, at times, Alex and his extended family, they tried growing alfalfa, barley, and corn, but they found that either it like stripped too much from the soil to, to be sustainable year after year as a crop. This is not the greatest farmland in the world. Right. It's like when you're going to force people uh, onto a, a piece of land, you're not going to give them the prime land. You're going to give them... The short end of the stick, which is what they've been getting since this whole bullshit started. Yeah, and so also alfalfa, barley, and corn are not fetching a high enough price to, to make ends meet. And at the time, unemployment on the reservation was about 85%. Oh, my God. Yeah, so Alex just felt like finding a good paying, you know, what a lot of people might think, get a job. Well, that's not really, it's more like a long shot. When there's 85% unemployment um, and you're already part of this marginalized community and you already live in a super remote place without much economic uh, development or base. Yeah. So they, yeah, they tried alfalfa, they tried barley, they tried corn, but then Alex started researching a different crop, mm. one that would be perfectly suited to local conditions. Ah, yeah. And... The great thing about this crop is that it's suited to a lot of different local conditions, right? <laughs> Cannabis is literally a plant that in parts of the world closer to its origin in South and Central Asia, they can't stop it from growing. You know, like literally it, New York City had rampant cannabis growing in it until Ainslinger led the, the campaigns to, to raid and, and sort of slash and burn all the cannabis that was just growing wild. This shit will grow everywhere. You put it in a cold climate, it'll thicken up and turn into fibrous hemp. You put it in a warm tropical climate, it'll turn into like sticky icky, right? Literally, you put it almost anywhere and it'll grow. It, there's good reason why this is one of the first cultivated crops, right? It's because cannabis just fucking grows really well. And if you give it some love, it'll grow really well. And, you know, we're very lucky in California, we get to taste the fruits of, uh, of that love. Okay, so in Alex's own words, in 1998, you could make $30 from an acre of alfalfa or $15 from an acre of barley. But with hemp and all its byproducts and fibers and seeds, we estimated that an acre could yield $167. Oh, wow. So a lot more. You can definitely make a lot more money growing hemp. Yeah, and if you're trying to support 10 
kids, and that's a huge difference. And so there's also a really interesting history of hemp cultivation on Indian reservations. And, and what it goes back to is at least as far back as 1845, there was a federal government program where they paid different experts in hemp cultivation. This is a time when hemp was completely legal in the United States and and everywhere, really. Because it was very, very useful and it grew well and it had like countless applications. Yeah, and we didn't have the drug war. Yeah. Uh, So the federal government would send people to the reservations to bring hemp seeds that were acclimated towards that environment and to teach people on the reservations how to grow and process hemp. As one backer of the program put it, if the Indians are going to give up their nomadic wandering, they must have a fiber crop, and I believe that crop must be hemp. So at this point, hemp or cannabis wasn't necessarily widely growing all over North America right? It was being cultivated in specific places by farmers, right? Yeah, it had largely been brought over from Europe where it had a long, long history as an industrial crop for, you know, everything but getting high, basically. And for the Lakota and a lot of the tribes, they were used to following the buffalo. Um, So it's not an agricultural, you know, if you are moving with the buffalo herd, you can't really plant crops. Right. Because you'll be somewhere else by the time they're ready. Yeah. Uh, and so in the darkness of being forced into these camps or reservations or however you want to refer to them and giving that up, then if you have to move to agriculture, you need to have crops that will sustain you. And, right. and uh, one of the tribal leaders... Uh, at the time set of this program to bring hemp to the different tribes that this was the only good thing the white man ever brought to us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. And I mean, initially, like, the white man's version of it was like the worst version. You know, as useful as as hemp is, uh, it's not nearly as awesome as, like, the, you know, the, the tropical kind of versions of it. Like, the way that Cannabis first made its way to the Americas in general, right, was along with Cortez, it said. It was like, these are sailors who used, you know, hemp rope and sails and all that. It was a very, you know, essential plant for nautical travel. So as soon as they got to America, as soon as they got to South America, Central America, they uh, planted hemp seeds and then in this tropical environment, it turned into psychoactive cannabis, like over a very short period of time. Yeah, it even reminds me of our episode when Napoleon invaded Egypt. And that is how hashish really moved into Europe. So we see these like terrible, so the worst things humans can do. The only thing worse than like killing people where you live is going somewhere else to kill people you've never even met. Uh, yeah. And but in the wake of this, this cannabis plant, this restorative, regenerative plant is also moving between cultures, whether it's Cortez, whether it's in the plains and it's the government bringing it to Indian tribes or 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 with this invading army in Egypt. And interestingly enough, 
Where did Cortez get the use of hemp for sails and rope? Was from the Arabs, right? Who had conquered Spain previously. And they were definitely using it uh, in its psychoactive form, right? And it's crazy. And before that, it was elsewhere. The story goes back and back and back. But it is really fascinating on this show. Sometimes we see these connections and we can trace the movement of cannabis across cultures, across centuries, across millennia, like up to today. Yeah, there's been all these really interesting books over the last 10 years that are like salt. How one little shaker of salt changed the world or cod. I saw one. I read one. And and they're fascinating. And it is a very interesting prism. And I would say cannabis is on that level. And, you know, in this show, we just keep seeing how it is a bridge between worlds and cultures. And even when it is trailing in the wake of real darkness, cannabis is always the force for light. Yeah, absolutely. And shout out Michael Pollan. I feel like he kind of started this trend of like, oh, wow, uh, you know, have you ever thought about where this thing came from or what the story is of like apples? You know, it's like the most surprising story ever. Um, and that's it. He also wrote about cannabis, but he only covered this kind of one slice of cannabis history. Right. And it goes so much further back than anyone could have really imagined. It's truly the reason we do this show. It's why we strive to be scholars of this specific thing, you know, because it's not just a metaphor. It is also the reality of the things it represents in countless iterations, countless iterations going back all the way into history. Yeah. And just the the book Michael Pollan wrote is called The Botany of Desire. It, it talks about four different plants. Cannabis is one of them. And it was like cannabis, apples, Tulips and potatoes. And potatoes, yeah. yes. All fascinating. Very fascinating. Only one of which is good to smoke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tried potatoes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's okay. It's, uh, yeah. Starchy. <laughs> Tulips are expensive. Taste, a, a, you know, not great and yeah. don't really get you high. You, I, I, you, can, you can smoke out of an apple. That's about the... Yeah. About the closest. But also, he, in researching that book, he came to the Cannabis Cup. Oh, no kidding. In Amsterdam. He wasn't quite the famous, you know, huge best-selling author that he is now. Uh, wow. But he came to learn. He talked to tons of people. He was very cool. And at the time, he was the gardening editor of the New York Times. And oh. he said the best plant growers of my generation, the best gardeners, are most definitely growing weed. Wow, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, really, what was interesting is his perspective was, let's look at the relationship from the plant's point of view. Mm. And his idea was cannabis became so useful and beneficial to humanity as medicine to get you high. You know, obviously the food and fuel applications of, of yeah. hemp, all of it, it just co-evolved with humans and had a survival strategy and a strategy to be spread around the world through incredible usefulness. Yeah. And he said, now when you add the prohibition on top of that, the plant has convinced humans to tend to its 
every need with dialed in nutrients, super lights. It's not the way I like to smoke my weed, sure. but his point is, Look how much attention we're lavishing on this plant more than any other in the world. At the time, you know, weed was selling uh, for six grand uh, uh, a pound on the on the underground market. So it makes a lot of sense to put this much effort into it. Yeah, truly. This is a thing that we come to realize in reading this type of stuff is that it's very arrogant to assume that we are the evolutionary peak in control of our environments because our environments are completely in control of us. The banana, the ubiquitous banana, is one of many varieties of banana that appeal to us enough that we replanted it and replanted it, allowing it to multiply, 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 right? Like... That banana's in control. <laughs> you know what I mean? It really is fascinating. And it's a thing that you learn more and more is that like, you're actually just a part of the environment. You're, you know, you're one cog in this very, very large organic machine. It's not like, oh, we conquer the banana because we farm it. Nah, the banana won in that situation. Or, or even in our attempt to eradicate the cannabis plant, that's what created the most potent cannabis of all time. No one would have gotten to wow. 15 or 20 or 30% THC. Those won. Sour Diesel won. OG Kush won. Friends, all friends of the podcast. Yeah, all friends of this <laughs> podcast. But yeah, it, it really is fascinating when you consider that, you know, we're obsessed with this thing because it's awesome. And in its awesomeness, it wins. Yeah, and, and and right in this literal moment, this plant has you and I talking about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and believe me, we talk about it in way more than this moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, when the mics are off, you can bet there's a 60 to 80% chance we're talking about weed or the politics surrounding weed or something like that. And and just to tie so to tie this back into Alex Whiteplume's story, this is the same thing. It is the incredible usefulness of hemp that even as the federal government is is executing this genocide against people, they feel compelled to give them access to hemp simply to survive because the plant is so useful. And that's in the mid 1800s. We go 100 years ahead. So we're in the mid-1900s now. Cannabis in all forms is federally illegal yeah. uh, because in 1937... Cannabis was illegalized throughout the United States. Marijuana Tax Act. Yes, that's all true. But the U.S. Department of Agriculture made a film to encourage farmers all over the country to plant hemp as part of the war effort. This film is designed to tell farmers how to handle this ancient crop. This is hemp seed. Be careful how you use it. I think really what that video illustrates is how powerful the anti-cannabis propaganda that immediately followed it really was because people were truly brainwashed. You know what I mean? Like when you look at what they're talking about, about like what hemp actually is, Right. You're like, oh, here's this essentially benign thing that is useful and the government is encouraging people to grow it. It seems like very ordinary. 
And then suddenly there's this surge of sensationalism around it. Public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. That's very, very heightened and very intense and very like, oh God, it's the worst fucking thing ever. It's gonna turn you into the devil. You know what I mean? It really kind of, the, the contrast there should really tell us how susceptible we are to loud voices. <laughs> well, fortunately, in our modern era, propaganda doesn't seem to be uh, false exist. and disinformation doesn't seem to be a problem. Yeah, but put yourself never in, heard of it. Yeah, put yourself in, in the mind of somebody. You know, I, I I think the other thing too is like, okay, hemp and cannabis are absolutely horrible. Oh shit, we're in a war. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> for now. Um, and uh, do you know what the film was called? I think if you, I know you're close to it. It's called, yeah. So I think it's called like Hemp, the Magical Fruit. It's not, <laughs> it's not that. It's not that, but it's like something like that, right? What is it? It is Hemp for Victory. Hemp for Victory. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Hemp for Victory. I can see the logo in my head now. All such plants will presently be turning out products spun from American-grown hemp. Twine of various kinds for tying, winding armatures and upholsterers work, thread for shoes for millions of American soldiers, and parachute webbing for our paratroopers. Hemp for mooring ships, hemp for tow lines, hemp for victory. For a brief moment, they had to weigh beating the Nazis against prohibiting hemp. <laughs> and somebody said, you know what? Let's just let the hemp thing go for a minute. Yeah. Beat the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And then we'll come back and we'll crack the fuck down on hemp yeah. again. Don't worry. We're not going to. And let we'll fuck up Vietnam. <laughs> and we'll <laughs> do all this other shit. Uh, but so. Yeah, and, and it tells this incredible history of how kind of slid into our lane there for a minute, but it's yeah. like, no shade. Watch it, Department of <laughs> Agriculture. We're, we're working here. Uh, but shortly after the war, uh, they go right back to total prohibition of cannabis in all forms, and they would deny that the film even existed until many years later, uh, a very famous hemp activist named Jack Herrer I yeah. uh, actually found a copy of it in the Library of Congress and resurfaced this film. Wow. And brought it all over the country to play it. It was sometimes played as a as the opener of a midnight movie with Reefer Madness on college campuses. Wow. And this really helped reignite sort of the hemp movement of the 90s, which is also the same time that Alex Whiteplume is looking at hemp as a way to bring a sustainable crop, not just to his family, but to the whole reservation. He's been through a lot at this point, right? And none of the crops are quite cutting it, but he is gonna harness the power of weed, he's gonna grow a bunch of hemp, and he's gonna use it to feed his family. That is definitely the plan. Now, uh, there's a few issues. One is the legality issue, which we will get to, which is, of course, more complicated because you're not technically in the United States. You're on sovereign reservation land. Uh -huh. But there's another issue. Where is he supposed to get hemp seeds from? Right. Any guesses? Hmm. Who would have hemp seeds at this point? So 
It's the 1990s. There's definitely some weed seeds floating around. Does he get it from like a hemp farmer, like an industrial hemp farmer? Well, after the war effort, the government says no more hemp farming, but still to this day now, hundreds of millions of feral hemp plants sprout up every year in ditches and along roadsides, and they are the direct descendants of the crops that were planted to win the World War II effort. These are the hemp for victory hemp plants still growing wild. Holy shit. So once again, this really shows how resilient the cannabis plant is, right? Because it won't stop growing. It'll always come back. And that's kind of a cool thing that to get the seeds to start this farm, he just had to look to his environment. Yeah, well, here is, we're going to take our our break in just a second, but here is Alex in his own words. He said, when we were ready to plant our first crop, no one in the U.S. had any hemp seeds at all. The the federal government had actually developed tons of, like, hemp strains Mm -hmm. during this time period and destroyed them all. Oh, my God. So we, we lost these incredible strains, except that they're right right out in the field for the plucking. Um, And the DEA in the 90s and into the 2000s, every year they'd put out press releases and say, literally, no joke, we eradicated 300 million cannabis plants this year. Yeah. And then you're like, what the, how the, I mean, I I had six. Yeah, how are you keeping count of that? (laughs) Because it's this feral hub. They're just going out and trying to beat back. Because otherwise, it would probably have taken over the whole Midwest. So let's let's go into our break with with Alex's words because it's going to propel us into the second part of this story where hemp theory meets hemp practice. But first, <laughs> he's got to get some seeds. Yeah. He says, when we were ready to plant our first crop, no one in the U.S. had any hemp seeds at all. But in a few places like Nebraska, hemp grew naturally. The seed stock that we started with is an outgrowth of the old hemp for victory strains. And that's really the best hemp that was ever developed. Wow. Right. Because they were like, you know, we're the U.S. government. We're going to have everyone growing hemp. It has to be the best goddamn hemp, the most useful hemp that we could possibly have them grow. This is Nazi fighting hemp. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear the rest of this shit. We'll be right back. Hemp for victory. Smoke weedia. And we're back. We got a fresh joint to smoke, and we're about to hear how Alex Whiteplume got into growing hemp. Yeah, so he he recovered these seeds from the feral hemp plants uh, originally planted for the World War II effort. And all this time, ever since he discovered hemp can make three, five, six times as much as alfalfa, he's been lobbying his tribal leaders to legalize it on the reservation. He's arguing that, you know, it's an environmentally friendly crop. It's a cash crop. It will give us self-sustaining local economy. It'll bring jobs. And we can also use hemp to build housing and structures on the reservation, which had a real uh, problem with substandard housing. 
Yeah, seriously. And this is another really great thing about hemp is that you can make very durable, environmentally friendly, and flame retardant building materials using it. And that's really important in a place like California where there's fires increasingly. And, you know, like it is just yet another incredible application of this plant. Yes, absolutely. And so... In 1998, and in parallel, there's this hemp movement happening all over the United States and all over the world. Alex Whiteplume is, is both inspired by this and a part of this. And in 1998, he finally convinces the Ogala Sioux tribe to pass an ordinance allowing hemp cultivation anywhere on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And so this is all a part of it. And he convinces the tribe to pass this in 1998. Takes a little time to get their uh, hemp ducks in a row. But in 2000, in the spring, and this is all documented in a really incredible film called Silent Standing Nation about Alex Whiteplume and his family. Yeah, this is Alex Whiteplume, three miles north of Manderson. And I just wanted to call in that I just had two DEA agents just walk into my house without knocking. Those guys act like they own the reservation. In 2000, they gathered together to chant traditional songs. And because they didn't have any industrial farming equipment, they are hand sowing a field of hemp with these seeds they've recovered from feral hemp plants. Wow. And that is not easy work. And I know that because I learned it. When I watched Hemp for Victory. Yes, the, the path of the hemp grower is righteous, but not easy. Yeah, yeah. The path of the weed grower, a little yeah. easier. <laughs> Very rewarding. Yeah, it's hard to grow It's hard to grow 12 hemp plants and make your nut for the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. You can clothe yourself, probably. You can make enough sails and rope for your own sea voyages. But not for anyone else's, probably. That's about it. And so Ramona Whiteplume, Alex's sister, and this is a, a family, a family farm in the in the truest sense. All of his siblings are still living on this land, and they've taken this journey together, and they've all chosen this hemp path. And so Ramona Whiteplume said, uh, "Of this day, they planted for the first time." It was a cool, clear, crisp morning, and we all went out there and started planting hemp. It was really a beautiful thing that first year when we planted. It was really a powerful feeling. But so all these things are lined up, the seeds are in the ground, but then... Oh no! We're at that part, in a great moment in weed history, when the fucking police show up. Whoop, whoop! That is the sound of the police. And on August 24th, 2000, so, you know, hemp, hemp is ready early. So they, they uh, waited till the crop was just about ready to harvest to inflict maximum economic and psychological damage on the white plumes. Holy shit. Um, the DEA arrived completely unannounced in mass and they're armed to the teeth. Let's keep in mind that this is happening on a reservation, which is supposed to be where the same prohibition doesn't apply because they have sovereignty, because they're sovereign. Yes, because of sovereign sovereignty, yeah. they can act in a sovereign yeah. manner with sovereign. the authority sovereign. granted to them. Mr. President, you've been a governor and a president, so you have a unique experience looking at it from two directions. What do you think tribal sovereignty means in the tri in the 21st century uh, tribal sovereignty means that it's sovereign 
And also, they have just affirmatively passed this law saying hemp growing is legal. So it's not some gray area. Right. Uh, and this is simply the DEA invading a foreign country armed to the teeth to rip away a really relatively small field of hemp from desperately poor people. That's insane. And, you know, we see this so often where it doesn't matter what the laws are, right? Because the authorities will just bum rush you and then they're like, oh, uh, if you want to complain about it, here, uh, enter the bureaucratic machine. You know what I mean? Like, that's their defense. That's why they can do whatever the fuck they want because they're, you could be like, hey, this is the law. Why the fuck are you destroying my farm? They do it and then they're like, well, we destroyed it and now if you want to complain about it, here, fill out this form. You know, it's like you're essentially stuck as a person. This is the definition of authoritarianism and it's especially fucked up that they're doing this on a reservation and on a hemp farm. This is non-psychoactive cannabis, despite the fact that cannabis might have restrictions on it. Like, this is hemp. This is an industrial plant. You should be able to get away with growing it. I mean, it's so fucked up. That is some bullshit. Yeah, and I, and I think the key phrase in here, when you talk about the law and what the law means and what sovereignty means is... They arrived heavily armed for a reason because that's the force by which they have the ability to impose their will on the white plumes. They don't have the law on their side, yeah. but the law doesn't really matter if you're willing to back up your side with violence. And what those guns mean is, hey, what, what we're here to do is take these plants away from you. But if you resist that in the moment, this is our recourse. Yeah. And that goes to the very beginning of, of, of this long and dark history and these broken treaties and what it means to have the rule of law only to have it be undermined by the oppressive force time and again. Yeah. Um, and now uh, that's the macro history and here in the micro, we see it happening to Alex Whiteplume, and, and here's how he describes what happened. A little bit after six o'clock in the morning, my little brother called me and he said, he said, they arrived or they came. And he didn't say who, but I knew who it was. Those agents were standing there with their mini 15s, M15s, pointed his gun at me and he said, halt, three times. For a split second, I had a little bit of fear and then something inside me just got angry. They're just like, oh charge and I, I just looked at him and I said you I'm not gonna say what I said but I said you're gonna have to shoot me in the back and I just started walking I told me you, you know you're violating the tribal law this is our, our family land this is our Teoshpa's land you're violating us and you're taking something that we planted we're gonna sell that we got people coming to buy that you can't do this to us oh they took it down anyway they they started their machines and it didn't take them too long as I stood there and watched that helicopter would hoover above and the hemp lights were so tall, they would way back and forth and just knock those agents around a little bit, you know. And, and I seen that, so I said, all right, they're fighting. <laughs> That's awesome. Holy shit, man. Of course, I mean, 
how could you feel anything but extreme outrage in a situation like this? You know what I mean? Like these, it's it's just mindless. They they're completely in the wrong, and I think it goes to show, man. Nature is literally fighting back. In this situation, people are trying to cut down hemp plants, and they're like whacking them over the head. That's a pretty incredible image. And I think to fully, you know, I don't think there's any way for us to fully appreciate that moment without having lived it. Uh, But if you've ever grown your own cannabis, you understand that connection that Alex White Plume feels, not just to cannabis, the plant, but to these specific plants that started uh, with seeds that there were hand sown into the ground and grew up in a single season to 20 feet tall, And so, you know, like many, many, many of the heroes of our stories, this is not the end. This is the beginning of Alex White Plume and the White Plumes fighting back. Awesome. Well, let's get to that part. So despite the sort of military nature of this raid and the complete destruction of this hemp crop, Alex White Plume was actually not charged with any crimes. Figures, you know, they were like, oh, here, uh, you got a problem with it? File a complaint. Yeah, they won't even deign to charge him with a crime because they know the law is not on their side. And now it's a fait accompli. They already destroyed the plants. They got what they wanted. But there was an even bigger irony than him not being charged with a crime. But it's an irony that wasn't apparent until the next spring. Oh, shit. So the plants came back. So this is in Alex White Plume's own words. When the DEA cut our plants down, they used weed whackers. Operations commenced, walked down to the end of the field, and we had uh, yeah. one of the 10 plants each, and these would be collected up and uh, put in the boat. And that reseeded the field something awful. Whoa, holy <laughs> shit, so there was like, now, even more cannabis plants growing? Yeah, so picture, you ever, uh, we are both of the generation that had some seeded weed in their lives. Oh yeah, I've smoked some. And if you think back and look back, like the the weed of, of way back, it's just full of seeds. Yeah. So picture hemp plants that are just ready to harvest. Well, they're full of seeds. Holy that shit. is the function of a hemp plant. Yeah. Seedier than any weed you've ever seen in your <laughs> life. And a big, huge field of it. And now you come through with these giant DEA industrial weed whackers. I'm sure this wasn't like your typical Home Depot weed whacker. <laughs> and just picture these hemp seeds flying in every direction. Oh my God, what incredible justice. Nature will always win. You can't just fucking fight off the plants. This is literally what I was saying up up top. I was like, dude, why would you even try to fight the plants? They're plants. They're always going to win. Fight the power. Don't fight the plants. And so Alex, uh, he continues. The next year, it was amazing. Every half inch, a hemp plant came up. Wow. I saw they were standing, still alive, and so I acknowledged them. Speaking to the plants, you are strong. Be like the buffalo. Be like the Lakota and survive. Oh, that is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and I just think this connection to the plant and this resiliency that we talk about and this attempt to restore things is, is a theme throughout a lot of these 
episodes. You know, many, many, as I say, of our heroes in these stories are people who just refuse to give up. Um, And these plants embody that by smacking some DE agents in the face, spreading their seeds everywhere. The next year, all of this volunteer crop comes up, but basically that's what it's called. Uh, And so the government comes again. Oh, my God. They destroy this volunteer crop. Is somebody, like, tipping them off? Are they just watching this farm? Well, once, you know, once they pass the law on the reservation and everyone knew it was Alex Whiteplume was the main person, they knew he was going to do this. They waited until it was almost ready to harvest the first time, as I said. Now you've gone through all the effort and expense of doing it. It's financially way worse yeah. Than not having done it. Yeah, so know. they did it on purpose just to fuck with them in the biggest way that they could. Yes, and we see this all the time in weed enforcement efforts as well. When when the DEA goes with helicopters into Humboldt County, they could easily go in June when the plants are small, mm-hmm. but they go in September to inflict the maximum damage on people. They want to demoralize them. They don't just want to financially ruin them. Yeah, And so they come again. This time they don't use weed whackers. They understand what happened. They carefully take it away. So guess what Alex Whiteplume does the next year? Plant a bunch of hemp seeds? Plant a bunch of hemp seeds uh, with his family. Hell yeah. And this year, this time they even managed to harvest a small crop. They grew more of a symbolic crop this time. They said, okay, there's a very good chance that this is going to get taken away from us. Uh, But we want to exercise these rights to prove they exist. So instead of trying to grow a big crop that's really going to uh, sustain them, they're just doing a symbolic crop and they actually managed to harvest it. But immediately after they harvest it, Alex Whiteplume is hit with an order from the U.S. government preventing him from cultivating hemp for life. And this is the first such injunction ever issued in American history. Oh my God, on what grounds did they issue this? Good question. Uh, Here's what Alex Whiteplume says. In 2002, so this is, you know, a few years after the first crop, the U.S. District Attorney and the DEA sat down with all their high-priced attorneys. Rather than filing criminal charges against me, they sued me in civil court. My annual income is $11,000 a year, and I raise an entire family with that. So I couldn't hire an attorney. I was barely able to go to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. If I had had $300,000, I could have taken this case all the way to the Supreme Court, and I probably would have won, but I didn't have the money, and I'm not willing to lose my little bit of land over this. Oh, man, that is so tragic. And it just goes to show, look who they're going after. A guy who, within his rights, farms to feed his family on $11,000 a year. These are very, very poor people who are being targeted. That is so deeply fucked up. That's our country. That's what's going on. And the other point Alex Whiteplume really makes is basically might makes right. Like, even though I know I'm right, even though I know that the actual laws are on my side... I simply cannot afford justice. And so for another decade after this, uh, he, he gets this injunction for another uh, decade. He, d- he does not grow hemp. 
Oh, um, and he turns to local politics, and he actually served as the president of the tribe during different time periods. And that was his focus. But then in 2016, as the legalization of cannabis in all forms, psychoactive, hemp, uh, the hemp bill in 2014 really started to open up hemp cultivation in the United States. Right. So this essentially legalized hemp farming, industrial hemp farming, and the transport of that product across state lines and internationally. Yeah, it began that process with sort of pilot programs. This was all started in the 2014 Farm Bill and has been progressing ever since to now we, uh, you know, hemp is being grown in many, many states for all kinds of uses. And so in 2016, this activist group called Vote Hemp, big shout out, big time friends of the podcast, people who had been working on Alex Whiteplume's behalf in all of his efforts dating back to the original crop. Mm-hmm. They, they look at this and they say, uh, in a word, this is bullshit on top of bullshit. You're right. you're now allowing hemp farming everywhere in the United States, and there's still this injunction against Alex Whiteplume. And this really touches on a real injustice in cannabis legalization, is that all the people who were fucked by the war on drugs, right, and had their lives destroyed, they are often the last to see the benefits of legalized cannabis They are the last to have an opportunity to start a business. Even when places try to undo this injustice, they just make it worse somehow. And it is the worst thing about cannabis legalization. And it has rightfully made a lot of cannabis people anti-legalization, which is very tragic because this thing that so many people have been fighting for for decades that has precipitated so much damage on so many individuals, like the fact that we got what we wanted in one way, but that it was manipulated and turned into something ugly and an even bigger monster in other ways is just, it's a great tragedy. For me professionally, it's like the great tragedy of this time. Yeah. Yeah. Babylon system is a vampire. Yeah. You know, and so uh, one of the things prohibition always did was for all its evils, it kept weed out of Babylon's system. And now that those two things are meeting, even in these attempts at restorative justice, we still see capitalism and we still see the government subverting that. I think the long term we have to see it as part of the road to healing everything. Yeah. Um, and that by bringing cannabis consciousness into these inherently unjust systems, we can begin the process of restorative justice, not just for those systems, but for the people involved. And that, you know, that's really the theme of this episode and the theme of, I think, Alex Whiteplume's life journey is. He's trying to restore this land to its environmental, pristine nature with a crop that is in line with those values. He's trying Mm -hmm. to restore his community to self-sufficiency despite this 
oppressive history. And this plant is our ally in doing all of this. And, and it's going to be a long road. And so, you know, vote hemp and Alex Whiteplume, they, as I say, they call bullshit. And they uh, get two former U.S. attorneys from this region near South Dakota who are who have seen this whole case the whole time. And they get a grant from uh, Dr. Bronner's. Hey, Dr. Bronner's, use it every day. Friend of the podcast and really a friend of the weed movement, of the psychedelic movement, of the of the of of really anything good. Uh, definitely yeah. a company that puts their money where their mouth is and supporting all kinds of great things. And they put up the money to basically uh, file a motion in federal court seeking the dismissal of this injunction that has been preventing Alex White Plume and his family from growing hemp. Wow, amazing. Shout out Dr. Bronner's. That is really awesome. Shout out Dr. Bronner's. Shout out uh, Vote Hemp. And of course, Alex Whiteplume, his family, everybody on uh, Pine Ridge Reservation who has been keeping this fight going the whole time. And finally, in this case, in 2016, the judge agreed and squashed the injunction but he didn't go so far as to give Alex Whiteplume a green light to actually plant hemp. Huh. This is this is the judge's word. So he says the injunction is lifted. But that's the the limit of my power. This order does not authorize Mr. Whiteplume to cultivate industrial hemp. Does not resolve whether cultivation of industrial hemp on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is legal and does not Resolve whether the Agricultural Act of 2014 authorizes cultivation of industrial hemp on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. He's saying this injunction is bullshit and there's no valid law underpinning it or authorizing it. That said, the old that being said, I can't tell you whether or not you can grow hemp. Uh. I'm just saying this specific injunction is bullshit. Well, if it's bullshit, then... He can grow hemp. Well, what do you think Alex Whiteplume does? Grow some motherfucking hemp. <laughs> yes. And to 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 bring it back to the now and to conclude our story for today of, of Alex Whiteplume and his family, they are now working with Boulder, Colorado-based company, a sort of activist company called Evo Hemp, uh, which buys all the hemp that the Whiteplumes raise and other families now raise on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And they use it to make CBD extracts, capsules, body care products, all kinds of these sort of hemp CBD products. And this has given the White Plumes now a real way to monetize their cannabis uh, hemp growing within the law and within their ideals. Wow, that is a happy-ish ending. (laughs) Because, you know, despite the fact that obviously there's still a lot of injustices around cannabis and that, you know, uh, his life could have been really different if he was treated fairly by the authorities, you know, in the end, he was able to be in business, growing hemp, doing his thing. Shout out to you, Alex Whiteplume. Wow, so that was really great. If you want to know a whole lot about hemp, watch Hemp for Victory. There's actually a lot of really good information in that video, and it's honest, unlike literally everything else the government has put out on cannabis ever since. (laughs) Um, So check that out if you get a chance. But that's going to be it for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. 
Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time. Hemp for victory! Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, Abdullah Saeed, and David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. We're produced by Cody Hoffmacher with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and Carson McCain. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. We're recorded at Gold Digger Studio by Gabe Wilhelm. Shout out to our patrons on Patreon. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at GMIWH Podcast on all platforms. Check out our show notes for links to our sponsors. Support us by supporting them. Thanks for listening. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.